Welcome to Bold Conscious Connections. My name is Raju Panjwani and I'm a certified leadership coach. And I'm Trisha Ramos, a certified high performance coach. Together, we help business leaders redefine success on their terms to create more space and energy so that they live impactful lives. Everyone wants to be seen, heard, and understood. So at a deeper level, we know that the collective consciousness is important to raise in this world. And leaders who are influencers can make that difference. We, in our coaching programs, teach people how to focus on the interconnectedness, heart-centeredness, and growth from within. And this is what this podcast will be about. So stay tuned and subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk to you very soon. In this episode, we're delighted to have this conversation with David Good. David Good's been a great friend of mine. He and his wife, Ela, have been such amazing uh, friends to me uh, personally for the last 20 plus years. David is a retired Foreign Service officer with uh, extensive experience in both India and the Middle East. He had a 34-year career uh, with the State Department, which took him to Delhi, Calcutta, Mumbai, uh, those who are in India. Uh, in Mumbai, he was the general, he was consul general uh, in 1999 up to 2002. That's when I met him, really. He also served in Abu Dhabi, Oman, Kuwait, uh, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv. And following his retirement, uh, he represented an Indian firm, uh, the Tata Sons in North America from 2005 to 2010, after which he consulted occasionally for both the Albright Stonebridge Group and the State Department. In his capacity with the State Department, he also had a short uh, you know, stint with, uh, as he was Consul General in Calcutta in the summer of 2014. David's been an amazing uh, support to me, and uh, you know, Trisha and I are delighted to welcome him to this podcast. He continues to pursue an active interest in association with India, and he travels there quite frequently. Of course, his wife is Indian, as I said. So without further ado, here is our conversation with David Good. David, welcome to our podcast called Bold Conscious Connections. We're so delighted to have you here today because you know you've been on the list for a long time, <laughs> and I know you've been you've been a little, little shy about coming on, but we're so delighted that you could actually make it and you know share with our audience uh, about all the things that I have said in the introduction prior to this podcast. But it would be great to hear what it is that you want to want to introduce yourself as, um, you know, to us. I know you're a very old friend of mine. Mm. We've, been t- we've known each other for over 20, 24. Two, 23 years, something like that, yes. Wow, I'm so honored. And I was delighted to introduce you to, to my, my <laughs> partner here in crime, uh, Trisha Ramos. Uh, you know, we've been working on this uh, for a while in our, our, our business, but, but really this podcast has been so exciting for us to what we are, what we do this for is to have this collective consciousness and getting to increase the learning of everyone around us, our audience, and and people at large, because we know that uh, there is this is the time in the world to be to be bold and, and conscious. So, welcome to our welcome. Well, thank you, thank you very much, both of you. I mean, it's a, it's an honor for me uh, to be here, and you're right. I have been shy about this. I've uh, con- come to this rather reluctantly because I wonder how much I really have that I can that uh, would be useful to share with other people but I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation and see where see where it goes and uh, Raju you're right I and mean, we've known each other for a long time 
I think just having you on the other side of this Zoom call makes me more comfortable. So and oh. Tisha, if, uh, you're a friend of Raju's and you're a friend of ours and uh, really a pleasure to get to know you also. So, oh, thank um, you. Let's go ahead and do this. And uh, how do you want to start? Always the modest, David, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what that Churchill said about somebody who's a very modest man with much to be modest about. So uh, <laughs> sometimes I feel that way. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so uh, as I said, we, we call our uh, uh, programs Bold and Conscious something or the other. And this is Bold Conscious Connections, which is a podcast. Um, so the first question we always ask our guests is, you know, when you hear the word bold, mm. what does it mean to you? And, you know, why is it important, in, you know, in life? Uh, you've uh, retired from the State Department. You, you were a consul general when I met you in Mumbai in India. And then you were, of course, have been posted in different mm. capacities uh, in, as ambassadors as well, I think, uh, in, in, in one or two of your assignments. You have a link to India, I know, and your wife is Indian. So anyway, that being, that being said, in your work, um, which you retired from the State Department, and then you worked for a, a global Indian company in Washington, DC, mm -hmm. be that as it may, where you are today, if you, when you hear the word bold, given all that we've been through in these, not only last year, but these past you know, decade or so uh, of your retired life, if you will, what, what do you make of the word bold? And what would you tell our... What is, what is bold? I mean, if I hear the word bold, I think bold is getting outside of your comfort zone. I mean, I think most of us go through life sort of comfortably to uh, sort of taking those paths that seem sort of the easiest and the most comfortable for us. But everybody is faced at some point in your life with, uh, with some kind of a choice to make. And if that choice is outside of your comfort zone, if that choice is to sort of do something a little bit more unusual, I consider that to be bold. You know, one doesn't have to be uh, climbing Mount Everest mm. in order to be doing something bold. I think anytime you go outside of your comfort zone, then you're, uh, you're acting in a bold way. And uh, each one of us sometime during life has that choice. And uh, the thought process is that people go through, that I went through, that you went through, that anybody goes through when you're faced with those choices are what uh, really sort of, uh, you know, gives you that characteristic of being a bold and not bold. You know, I think I've been pretty lucky that uh, the kind of choices that I've had in life have uh, usually been very good choices, and uh, uh, I've not really sort of been faced with any tremendous challenges, but uh, I think everybody does have challenge, and uh, I've had my share of challenges, and although not the kind that are existential. I mean, I, I want to be honest and sort of say that I don't believe that I've ever sort of been in a a situation where the choice that I make was really going to sort of have some kind of an existential effect on me or my family. They've basically been choices between different kinds of paths in the foreign service, different kinds of countries that uh, one is going to be assigned to. Um, after I retired, sort of choices that are made about the kind of way that you're going to be spending uh, your uh, the rest of your, your main career, uh, post your main career, these kind of choices. But they've always been good choices and choices that uh, you know, they, they've always been good for me, I think good for my family also. And so I feel blessed that way that uh, my choices have not been that difficult. But yes, I mean, one does have to decide at some point, uh, at several times in your life, you know, which path you're going to take. And I face that just as everybody else has. What's so, one, yeah. what, David, what is one story, perhaps, or example, that you could share with us that speaks to 
what you just described as far as a bold, a choice you made that you consider to be bold? Gosh, a bold choice. I think, um, I wouldn't call this a bold choice, but I would say that it was kind of a, a life-changing choice. Mm. And that was when I first joined the Foreign Service. Now, I don't want to make it sound as if joining the Foreign Service when I did was some kind of a sort of a major bold action on my part. I studied foreign affairs when I was in college. Uh, the idea of taking the uh, Foreign Service exam was uh, something that occurred to many of me, uh, many of my colleagues as well as myself. We were all studying foreign affairs. I was fortunate enough to be able to pass the exam and get in. But uh, I, I suppose the first big choice that I was faced with there was uh, where was I going to go? I had this notion of the Foreign Service as uh, entering the State Department and telling them where you want to go. I would like to go to Paris and be a cultural officer and sort of have a wonderful time. And they say, uh -uh, uh -uh. these are your choices. You can go to Zambia. You can go to, uh, I think there were three or four uh, choices in Africa. There were one or two in uh, Latin America. I think there was one in Eastern Europe. And there was one assignment in India. Now, India is something that I'd never thought about before. I mean, I just sort of knew the basics of where India was. I kind of had a vague idea of who Gandhi was. Uh, but anything more than that about India, I had really no idea at all. But looking at them all, I said, well, India sounds the most interesting. And it was as simple as that. But that was uh, a life-changing choice for me. I mean, my whole life changed after that. I went to India. I fell in love with the country. I fell in love with an Indian woman. Uh, we got married. Uh, the rest of my life is really, even when I wasn't living in India, really sort of revolved around what happened in India and my connection with it. So you just never know that some of those choices that may seem to be simple mm. at the beginning actually turn out to be perhaps more bold and life-changing than you thought that they might be at the, uh, you know, when you were making those choices. Wow. Beautiful, bold and beautiful. <laughs> I love that. I heard that before, bold and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And you thought there was nothing interesting about your life. Come on, there's wow. so much I know already. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But uh... so, give us some context when you when you made that. I mean, you know, you say it was it was nothing so bold or courageous. You were given a a platter of countries to choose from. That's right. What was life like for you growing up? And and just Give us a little idea of you know who you were as a child, and then you got into this. Well, I, was, I grew up in a military family. My, my father was a career naval officer. He was uh, in the he was a navy pilot during World War II, and then like so many of the other veterans, came back and sort of started life. But he stayed in the military, and so I grew up kind of moving from one part of the country to another, wherever wherever my father was uh, posted. And I think my my life was fairly normal, except for the fact that every two or three years I had to get up and move. Mm -hmm. with another school and other friends and things like that. And I think that probably sort of affected my ability to, to I, I, I say ability to make friends, but I think that for me, the difficulty was in making friends because leaving people behind and having to make new friends to explain yourself who you are, where you came from, what you're all about. You know, that's something that was a continual challenge every two or three years. Again, I don't want to make it seem as if it was some kind of a huge challenge. There are people who find who have much bigger challenges. But uh, nonetheless, just uh, that idea of sort of reinventing myself in a way every few years uh, was something that I had to cope with. And I always felt uh, badly about moving my own children that way, because here I grew up like that. 
Mm. And when Ela and I had children, we had two lovely daughters. One of them is, uh, believe it or not, Raju, 41 now. Wow. <laughs> and the other one is 38. Um, but uh, I always thought, am I doing the right thing by moving them from place to place? And mm -hmm. I know that they would cry sometimes, leaving their friends behind and then having to go to another place. I think you probably face that to a certain extent yourself. I don't know about your life, uh, Tricia. But... Nine schools for me uh, and nine cities. Okay, well, there you are then. And, and it's Well, not... a, a country, you know, moving right. to a, another country at age 11. So yeah, I know yeah. a little bit about it. It's <laughs> even more difficult, even more complicated, I think. But it's never easy for kids. And, uh, and it wasn't that easy for me either. But, uh, you know, one, one went through it. And I think it, it, for me, it was good that I was able to see parts of the country and sort of move around the country in a way that a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to do. And, uh, and I like to think, and my kids do tell me now, that the opportunity that they had of living in different places and being exposed to different kinds of people. And I think in some ways, one thing that I'm very pleased about is that both of my daughters have this tremendous respect for religions in different parts of the world. I mean, they've lived in Muslim countries, they've lived in a Jewish country, we lived in Israel for several years, we lived in India, which has a plethora of different kinds of religions. And uh, even though I wouldn't consider any of us to be very religious people, nonetheless, I think that uh, my children had grown up with a tremendous respect for the diversity of religions and the diversity of cultures that people have. And that's something that I, I'm very proud of in them. But, uh, you know, other kinds of challenges. I grew up like that. Uh, uh, I suppose the, the biggest challenge or the biggest sort of, how should I say, sort of difficult moment that I faced while growing up was when my brother passed away. And my mm -hmm. brother was three years, three years older than me. And so when I was, uh, he was 21, so I must have been 18 when he suddenly took ill and then finally died. And I think that was a... Uh, that was a kind of a watershed moment. And I, I, I have to, if I can just digress for a moment, I have to give a lot of credit to my parents because it was extremely difficult as you can imagine for them to lose a child. Um, but it was not something that they ever sort of, how should I say, sort of, I don't want to say used against me, but it was not something that was so sort of deeply ingrained in them that they sort of be, either became more protective of me or in some ways sort of began to question, you know, why you, not him, why him, not you, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that uh, I have to admire my parents for having gone through that and still uh, given me the sort of love and affection that I needed in order to get through it myself. And then also to continue with my life without feeling that somehow my life was somehow less than it was before my brother passed away. And so I admire my parents for that. Mm -hmm. That is uh, so beautifully shared, and thank you for sharing that. Of course, I know a little bit about that, but I didn't know what you just said. And I know you were very close to your to your dad, and you took care of him all the way till you know till his. Until a few, it's been six years now since my father passed away. No. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, life can always be challenging, and it's it like is. whoever. There's always something. Yeah. There's always there's always something that you have to face. I mean, life is. A series of challenges. I mean, it's a, it's not a continuum. Life is uh, every day. There's a new set of challenges. Some of them are easy and simple. Others are not. But it's a, it's a question of sort of making those choices and and dealing with those challenges on a daily basis. Anybody who believes that life is just kind of an easy continuum from the beginning to the end, it's not like that at all. Uh, 
we all have those challenges and we all have to sort of make choices every day. Mm. Right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us, um, David. What are, what are some of your practices that perhaps you've done throughout your life that have helped you stay conscious to that idea about what you just shared about life? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> I think I've always felt that however I felt in any one particular moment, whether I might be down or I might be very up, I always tell myself that this is just temporary. You know, there is the Chinese philosopher, as we all know, who when asked for a phrase that was true in all occasions, he said, this too will pass. Mm. And so I've always sort of kept that in the back of my mind that whenever I felt really sort of down, whenever I felt that there was something that was really maybe too difficult to really kind of deal with, you know, I always tell myself that this too will pass, will pass and that, uh, you know, tomorrow there'll be a sort of a new set of circumstances that may make this a little bit easier to deal with. And uh, so I always sort of think about what the future is going to be. And I always think that there's, uh, there's going to be something new there. There's going to be something else that's going to sort of draw my attention and, uh, and something that I'll be able to sort of deal with and concentrate on. And uh, that uh, will be different than today. And so uh, I think that's, that's a good philosophy. It's a philosophy I've always had to sort of get through some of the more difficult times. And uh, just to realize that uh, that there's going to be there's going to be a tomorrow, there's going to be a next week, and there's going to be a new set of circumstances that will sort of occupy your mind. And uh, usually they're much better than the ones that are troubling you at any particular moment. Mm -hmm. Such a good reminder, especially for the shared uh, challenges that mm -hmm. we all have as as a planet today, right? That's living right. through what we're living through. That's, that's so important to keep that perspective. Mm -hmm. David, you know, throughout your life, I know you, I don't know how many countries now you were, you were based in. Uh, I'm going to guess about eight to 10, at least I know, maybe more. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, I think eight, eight or nine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and you being responsible for, you know, the, the U.S. presence in those locations, I know particularly the, the, the one in India than when I met you back back in the day, you know, you, you, you had the responsibility for not only the, the, the visa, you had the consul, uh, the, the actual economic council, you had all the different things that, that go with having a U.S. presence in cities. And of course, uh, you then work with the embassy in that country. You know, and you deal with a lot of business leaders, you deal with a lot of, uh, you know, folks in, in the leaders in that in that particular location. Uh, with this is not a question for India or anything specific, but because most of our audience is business leaders and entrepreneurs and coaches, etc. You know, what were your maybe one or two greatest leadership lessons that you either learned for yourself or kind of gathered in your life, like, wow, these are one or two things that have been life's leadership lessons for you. Oh, gosh, I know. that's a tough question, leadership question. First of all, let me back up for a moment. You mentioned earlier that I might have been an ambassador. I was never an ambassador in a country, and I'm actually glad that I wasn't. Uh, when one is an ambassador in the capital city, one's entire sort of professional life is wrapped up, almost all of it wrapped up with interactions with the host government where you're assigned. One of the wonderful things about being in uh, Mumbai, Bombay as we called it back in the day, 
was that you were not limited just to the host government. I mean, we did interact with the government of Maharashtra, the government of Gujarat and uh, other, other states that were within my purview, but we were able to interact with a wide variety, a wide diversity of people in the city. That's why it was such a wonderful opportunity of meeting mm -hmm. people, not only in the business sector, but also in the arts and entertainment sector, in media, in, um, in education. Uh, there were just any number of sort of interesting people in Mumbai that we were able to interact with. That's not always the case in a capital city where 90% of your time is just sort of fighting bureaucratic wars with the, uh, with the host government. So I was much, much happier in a place like uh, uh, like Mumbai than I ever would have been in Delhi, although I was assigned to Delhi early in my career back in 1971. The same was true, I think, in when we were assigned to Jerusalem, because I spent four years in Jerusalem back in the days when now there's an embassy assigned in uh, U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. But when I was there, it was a, an American consulate general in Jerusalem. And there again, we had the opportunity of sort of not having to sort of fight with the Israeli government all the time, but we had the opportunity of sort of meeting with Israelis and Palestinians, uh, you know, on the ground of all sort of backgrounds, all kinds of walks of life. And that was always, that was just such a fascinating, wonderful thing to sort of have that opportunity. And uh, I, I would say that one of the interesting things that I found in dealing with both Israelis and Palestinians when we lived in Jerusalem was that the, the, the desires of each side, both the Israelis and the Palestinians were so similar to one another that each one of them wanted to have a better life for themselves and for their, especially for their children. Each one of them wanted that. And the, th the, the things that they sort of look forward to, the things that they sort of dreamed about uh, for the future for their children were so similar to one another that uh, the politics sometimes just sort of seemed to be a long way away. And mm. so the opportunity of having that interaction with, those, with people on both sides of the line, if you will. Now, in terms of, of sort of leadership, gosh, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, in, in Mumbai, it was anytime that you're in charge of a large number of people. Now, the consulate in Mumbai in those days was not that large. I think there were only about 25 Americans who were assigned to the consulate in Mumbai. These days, I understand that there are close to 100 Americans the consulate in Mumbai. So it's a much bigger operation. In fact, it's larger than I, I would even say most embassies around the world. But working with that many different kinds of people, especially people in the consular section who were stressed out tremendously every day because of the kind of interactions that they had with people. There were people coming into the consulate who wanted to go to the United States for many, many different kinds of very legitimate reasons. Some of them were economic, some of them were family reasons, some of them were health reasons. But decisions had to be made every day about whether according to the rules, according to the laws, these people would qualify for visas to go to the United States or not. Knowing that when if they said no to somebody that these, the sort of emotional toll that, that might uh, that might uh, occur with those people who were turned down. And in turn, the emotional toll that would take place for the people who said no to them. Hmm. It put a tremendous amount of stress on the, on the people in the consulate. And so as the consul general, 
you know, we had to be aware of that kind of stress on both sides. We had to be aware of what it was doing to our American officers. We also had to be aware of what our, our rate of acceptance and refusal, what kind of effect that was having on people's attitudes towards the United States, on the effect, of, uh, the effect that it had on people who were, uh, you know, had very close ties to the United States, whether they were business ties or family ties. One had to take those kinds of things into consideration all the time. And that was one of the things that sort of kept the stress level in Mumbai at a high level all the time. But, uh, but I would say overall, the opportunity of being in Mumbai, the opportunity of sort of interacting with this sort of wonderful, tremendous, fascinating diversity of Indians, you know, who lived in the city at that time. It was overall just sort of one of the most fascinating experiences of my life. Terrific. Wow. Thank you for that insight. You know, we, we, uh, we spent some time in the consulate a year ago. Yeah, we, <laughs> we were there. Yes. That's, that's another story, another conversation. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Um, I, I so appreciate you sharing that because to, in, in any interaction and in any, um, I guess conversation, there's always two sides, right? And you know, hearing you talk about the stress that it caused for both sides really, I think, is a reminder for us to practice compassion, right? Mm -hmm. That we, we are so limited in what we're able to relate to or perceive based on which side of the table we're sitting on. And just hearing you um, illustrate that there, there's there's two sides to have, everything there are always two sides to any kind of a story any kind of an argument that's yeah another thing, that's another thing that i've learned over the years in the foreign service is that whatever i hear whether it's in politics whether it's uh, something that i read in the newspaper something that i hear on the news i'm always just sort of somewhat skeptical because i always know that there's another side that you've got to listen to there's another side that's going to have a different perspective on what you hear and it's, uh, you know, sometimes my wife tells me that that's, uh, you know, why can't you just sort of take a, take a position on something? <laughs> and it's the classic, uh, the classic definition of a liberal is, uh, you know, somebody who can't take his own side in an argument. <laughs> because I'm always sort of thinking about what the, what the, uh, what's happening on the other side, what the, what the other person is thinking and what it is that's driving them, what devils are driving them mm. to say what they're saying. And there always is another perspective that I think is worthwhile looking at. That's a great lesson, man. Yeah, we talk yeah. about unity consciousness, you know, with our audience all the time and this this ability that, um, you know, some people, it comes more naturally than others, but the ability to empathize mm -hmm. and to really be able to see yourself in the other person's shoes. So it was really interesting to hear you talk about that experience as well as what you learned when you were in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on a side note, I sorry. I said that's, that was such a fascinating experience. I mean, nothing, nothing can sort of match our time in uh, Mumbai just because it was India. My wife is Indian. You know, I love the country. And uh, there's also this little anecdote. I think you're aware of this, uh, Raju, that we lived in the uh, former palace of the Maharaja of Wankaner, <laughs> now, uh, which was uh, purchased by the Americans uh, way back, I think, in the 1930s or something like mm -hmm. that, and uh, turned into the consulate. It's not that way anymore. Now it belongs to the yeah. Pukawala family. And uh, 
in India. But when we lived there, it was the former palace of the Maharaja of Wankaneer. And my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, is from Wankaneer. Oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> you didn't know that? I didn't so, know that part. So the idea that her daughter was living in the palace of her Maharaja. Oh my God. <laughs> but that's also something that made it very special. In fact, when she had her 90th birthday, we did it in the uh, in the consulate and invited uh, you know, a large number of family and friends of, uh, of my mother-in-law's to uh, to the consulate. And we also invited the Maharaj Kumar, the uh, the son of at that time, the I think the 95-year-old uh, Maharaja of Wankaneer. He and his sister came and uh, right. talked about the family and the family's background in Wankaneer also. So that's one of the other things that made it so so fascinating and such a special uh, experience to be in, in Mumbai at that time. Mm. But no. I was so uh, honored to meet you there and I've, been, I've had the opportunity to go there many times before you and after you that it was such a, an amazing place to be right on the on the water and the beach. It was just spectacular. Exactly right. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. But Jerusalem uh, was really a fascinating place also just because it's just such a fascinating, such a fascinating mm -hmm. uh, city. I mean, the idea of, of living in a, uh, you know, within walking distance of a place that people used to go through tremendous hardships. You know, for a thousand years, people, two thousand years, people would go to tremendous hardships in order to reach Jerusalem. And there I was just living right there. I could walk out my front door and in 10 minutes be in the old city of Jerusalem. And it was just a tremendous. The only place I've ever been that I considered it a real privilege to have the opportunity of living in that city. I mean, it's just a, a fascinating place. <laughs> wow. Um so David, you know, you shared with us earlier what it was like for you as an 18-year-old, um, losing your older brother and, uh, you know, your childhood, moving to many different places. Um, but tell us about uh, an obstacle or a challenge that you overcame and perhaps what you learned from that. Uh. Now, I think I mentioned to you the other day that uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to West Point. Mm. And uh, so I am part of the long gray line, but I'm just a tiny little part of the long gray line because <laughs> I didn't graduate from West Point. And after being there for, I think, about eight or nine months, West Point and I came to a gentleman's agreement that it was not the right career for me. And they were absolutely right. And but nonetheless, you know, my father had been in the military, although not in the army. And so the idea of actually having failed in this uh, pursuit of uh, becoming an officer and graduating from West Point was something that sort of really, really put me down, you know, for some time. And I was very, very concerned about what my what my father especially might think about all of it. And I was very pleased later on to find out that both of my parents thought that I was not cut out for the military either. So, <laughs> so it made it a little bit easier, I think, for me as well as for them to sort of accept the fact that I had gone to West Point and didn't, didn't quite make the cut and then left and then uh, was faced with, now what am I gonna do with at the age of whatever it was, 19, I think, or what am I gonna do now with the rest of my life? So, so I did end up going to a civilian college for the, the next three, three years or so. And, then uh, the Foreign Service beckoned. I took the Foreign Service exam. It was all a very easy process. I passed the, passed the written exam and passed the oral exam. But after I, and I went to India, and I, as I mentioned earlier, my whole life changed. 
But I have to say also that India for me in those days was such a wonderful sort of ex personal experience that I began to sort of, I think, merge my personal satisfaction and, and pleasure at being in India with my professional uh, sort of satisfaction and pleasure of being in India. And I suddenly found myself after leaving India that again, the powers that be had decided that maybe I was a bit too comfortable in India and wasn't paying enough attention to my work. And I found myself sort of in the low rank in the sense of saying, well, we know you've enjoyed yourself in India, but if you don't pull yourself together, and sort of, uh, you know, sort of take a more professional attitude perhaps to your job that you're not going to have a job in another year or so. And so it was basically a warning to me that, uh, you know, that, uh, okay, you've been too comfortable in India, it's time for you to sort of get a really hard job now, <laughs> you know, one that where your comfort level is not going to be quite, uh, quite as, uh, quite as easy, pull yourself together, you know, otherwise you're going to find that uh, perhaps this isn't the job cut out for you either. That was a real wake up call for me as well, you know, for suddenly to find out that I had to maybe separate my personal uh, life and sort of put more attention to my give more attention to my professional life. And so my next assignment was in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> so something completely different. And so the, we went off to the Arab world. And uh, Abu Dhabi in those days, I mean, don't conjure up pictures of Dubai because it was nothing like that. I mean, the it was soon after the, the oil embargoes, uh, money was just beginning to pour into all of the Gulf states. They were just beginning to sort of spend that money. And so what had been once sort of very sort of slow and bucolic sort of little fishing villages were suddenly awash with money. And Abu Dhabi was just like living on a construction site. I mean, it was, uh, there was really, there were no large buildings there. There were still fishermen pulling their boats up onto the sands and the beaches in the morning. Dubai, believe it or not, had one large building, one tall building, and that was about maybe 25 or 30, uh, 30 stories high. It was, it was like living on a huge construction site. And so that's where I sort of suddenly had to start pulling myself together and saying, well, I have a professional career that I'm going to have to pursue as well. And so I, I did that, moved, spent a year there, moved on to Oman, Jordan after that, and then sort of got my career back on track. And that was the beginning of, I think, uh, 12 years, 13 years that I spent in the, in the Middle East. And it was only then after my career had sort of gotten on a good solid footing that I finally decided it was time to go back to India again. And that's when we went back to Mumbai. But it was a real wake up call, I can tell you that. I mean, it was, uh, it was maybe among the three or four times that I'd been most sort of down and depressed in my life when it really looked as if this, this career that I sort of set myself out on wasn't going to work out for me and I might have to actually go out and try to find something else. But uh, my family was very supportive and, uh, and again, you know, it was a realization that uh, that okay, this is happening, but you've got these, you you still have these opportunities ahead of you, an opportunity to sort of pull yourself together and to sort of really begin to crack down on your professional life and decide that this is what you want to do. And so we were able to overcome that. And you know, the rest of my career, I think, you know, went pretty well, fairly well. I was very happy with all of my assignments. Abu Dhabi was not the greatest place in the world, but nonetheless, it was a uh, it was interesting just to have that opportunity of living in uh, in one of these Gulf states, just as they were beginning to sort of become the sort of economic powerhouses that they are today. 
and then uh, to, to move from there into eventually to Jerusalem and to Tel Aviv and to be dealing with some of the issues of the Arab-Israeli conflict and then going on back to uh, India again. I mean, I, it was a progression that worked out very well for me, but it had a very inauspicious beginning. Wow, and really, uh, you know, recalling that for us really speaks to what you spoke about in the beginning as far as your, your belief that, you know, the, this too shall pass, right? Like really just keep going and, and, and you, you just, you, that's what you illustrated, so. Whatever, whatever you feel in any particular time, whether you're very down or very up, it's going to be different tomorrow. It's mm -hmm. going, you know it's going to change. There'll be new circumstances, you know, that will be different, that will be affecting you and everybody around you and the next day or the next week. And so I guess the lesson is not to sort of lose yourself in the moment, you know, mm -hmm. whether that's a, a negative or a positive moment, but just don't lose yourself in that and realize that things are going to be different in another week or so. And you can still try to shape that to the extent that you can. All right, wow. I'm hearing so many things and nuances about your experience that I didn't know, see? So Amazing. powerful, yeah. I feel very grounded just <laughs> listening to you. Yeah, I feel I feel super grounded right now. Let's just not fly high or let's not fly too low, just yeah. stay, stay the It really, like you're speaking to like being in the present, yes. being in the present moment. Yeah. But, I, but I do feel very fortunate because I mean, I've lived in a lot of very interesting places. I have a wonderful family. Um, I think that the many, many more good things have happened to me than otherwise, and I'm very grateful for that. So, you know, you know, when we're talking about business and leaders, et cetera, as they're probably listening, you know, they might, they might, and I know that's not the case, that it's, it's not a cakewalk that you've had. It's just that you've learned enough, so much in life, and there's so much wisdom you have here that, that you know, you, you did face all these obstacles. You did have uncertainties of your own, um, but you've transcended them. And uh, I guess what I'm hearing is that, you know, it's, 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 uh, these are all momentary things and you are, you're advising them to be, be in the moment and not just, you know. I think so. I think that the lesson is just that you shouldn't be overwhelmed by any one particular moment. Yeah. Um, because uh, things are not static. You know, things, and it may not be something that you, that you change yourself. It may be something from outside that changes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, to, to use kind of a Middle East uh, analogy in a sense, again, this is something I used to say about the Arab-Israeli conflict. If something would happen and people would say, oh, well, that's the end of it. You know, nothing is ever going to happen good after this. Or, you know, this is going to, this is so good. It's got to be, everything's got to be smooth sailing after this. You know, after the signing of the uh, Israeli PLO peace accords, I think, and whenever it was 1990. I think 1993 or 94, people said, oh, we're all going to be out of a job now, all of us Middle East specialists, because everything is going to be solved. But it never works out like that. There's always something else. I always said about the Middle East, it's like a gigantic game of pickup sticks. And that is that whenever you move one little thing on one, uh, on one part of the pile of pickup sticks, everything moves. Everything moves. And how they're going to sort of realign themselves, nobody knows. Something is, uh, something is going to be different that's going to be unexpected. And I think sort of life is like that also. Sure. Whatever, whatever choices that you make are going to have repercussions on other people and other things around you. So that it's, uh, your choice is not, is not just a choice for you, you alone, 
It's a choice that's going to change everything about your context around you, and it's going to change other people around you too. And so, however you decide to sort of deal with an issue today, whatever choice that you make, whether it's a small one or a large one, tomorrow you're going to find that that's going to have repercussions that you can't predict. And so, uh, in many cases, they'll they'll make things better for you. <laughs> so, bringing this all to today, um, um, I mean, these times have been you know, unusual, right, to say the least, oh, globally, yeah. globally in 2020, and continuing into this year already. Um, you know, leaders who face all sorts of challenges in business or launches or businesses going awry, businesses changing course, new businesses coming up. What sort of uh, advice would you give them given these rather unusual and, and uncertain times? Advice? I mean, I'm not a businessman myself, but I've been very impressed by the way that people have adapted, the businesses have adapted. I mean, the businesses that are successful are the ones who are sort of at the very beginning of the pandemic, for instance, when everything sort of changed practically overnight, when things were shut down, suddenly people were at home, people were not going out. I mean, it, the changes were really existential, I think, for a lot of different kinds of businesses. But I've been so impressed by the way that so many of them have changed and adapted, you know, whether they're restaurants that have managed to adapt themselves to sort of a carry out, whether they are a, a business that's managed to now use Zoom as a means to sort of reach out to people that they never would have used before, or that your clients that the people that you're working with are now so uh, sort of able now to sort of use a technology to sort of expand their own worlds and expand their own sort of way of communicating with people and the things that they learn from other people through this technology that they may never have sort of thought about using mm -hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, in some ways, I think we're going to find it a little bit difficult to get used to an in-person way of sort of dealing with people again when we've had so many opportunities given to us by means of Zoom and uh, other technological uh, ways of communicating with people. Um, but uh, and I think the most successful businesses are the ones that said, okay, this is what's happened to us. How can we adapt to it? How can we continue to sort of achieve our goals? How can we continue to sort of reach out to the people whom are, who are our clients? Uh, how can we continue to do that even with all of these restrictions that we have? And those people, I think, are the ones who are going to continue to be successful. Mm. Uh, so I, my hat's off to those kinds of people. And, I, and there are others who haven't been able to make those uh, adjustments and I, I'm sorry for that because it's uh, you know they may have put everything that they had into uh, creating a business uh, of a certain type but they just were not able to adapt to uh, the change circumstances and they've had to go out of business but uh, by and large I think uh, businesses around the world and people around the world have adapted to this uh, this mm -hmm. new reality and it's, it's something that's I think admirable and uh, really sort of awesome to watch. So I think it sounds like it's innovation and, and continuing to be connected to that purpose rather than simply, I mean, maybe some, some that didn't make it had their own uh, challenges, but the bottom line is if you can innovate and figure out another way to, to be of service, that's what it sounds like. You have to figure out who your clients are, who yeah. is it that you're trying to reach, and then decide how can you continue to reach those people under these circumstances. Absolutely. Well, what it definitely doesn't involve is waiting for right. things to go back to the way it was. <laughs> so, right. yeah, 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 I think uh, 
I think the innovation, the focus on on who you're serving, the focus on uh, the purpose is hopefully driving people to continue to look ahead, look forward versus just wanting to, you know, versus just getting stuck. Yeah, you don't want to sort of uh, pull you, uh, dig yourself into a hole and just kind of sit there. No, and I think that, um, you know, just uh, sort of speaking for somebody like myself who's retired, I mean, I think that there have been, I, I have not faced that same dilemma that we're talking about because I mean, I didn't have a business that required reaching people and suddenly I had to find a new way of doing that. But as a sort of, as a sort of recipient, if you will, of services, uh, it's, uh, there's been a, a new sort of world that's kind of opened up in a way that, uh, you know, the, the kind of programs that are available, the webinars, the lectures, the ability to sort of hear from people on, uh, on the other side of the world and hear what they're doing and saying and thinking about. I mean, all of these things are, there's a certain amount of it was there before, but I have to admit that the opportunities to participate in that kind of a discussion, you know, have been multiplied tremendously over the last uh, last year or so. And for that, I'm grateful. And if any of that shuts down, I'll be, I'll miss it actually. <laughs> after this whole thing is over. I hope some of those things can, I hope things like this, like what you're doing, I mean, it continue to, uh, you know, continue to happen, continue to take place and you're able to continue to sort of reach out uh, and reach people this way. I think many people probably find it more comfortable to have a discussion with you this way than perhaps uh, having a similar kind of discussion face-to-face. Mm-hmm. You know, the this too shall pass comes to mind again, as you were saying, mm-hmm. but it doesn't literally apply in this case. You don't want that to because this too shall pass and therefore everything will be back to normal again. That's not what that's not what that I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. And this, this may pass, but I think that there'll be new ways of doing things that are going to be that are going to be permanent. Yes, those listening, don't take that literally, please. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you know what is so apparent in listening to you? And you're, you're, uh, you're, it's a, it's, it's a lot of different things, but the word that comes to mind to, for me is your disposition. Mm-hmm. Your, ju- like your, uh, your positive disposition is key element to understanding what this too shall pass means. Exactly. Because this is referring to this moment of discomfort, this moment of, difficulty or challenges and you know generally when 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 someone has a positive disposition as you've been able to demonstrate for us during this conversation yeah it's really events in and of themselves are neutral Mm -hmm. however it's the meaning that we assign to them and the meaning then determines how we respond is what creates our experiences, ultimately. I, I, I think that I do, one thing that I think that I do have, which is a blessing for me, is that I do have a calm disposition. Mm-hmm. I don't get rattled very, very easily. And if I am at, on the verge of getting rattled, again, I sort of think that, well, in an hour or so, it's not going to be like this. <laughs> And I'll tell you another sort of little interesting story. And this goes back to my West Point days. And sometimes I find it interesting that the short time that I spent at West Point, which was I think about eight, eight months or eight and a half months or something like this, 
has given me more stories to tell <laughs> than perhaps any other sort of eight months in my life. When I was at West Point, especially during plebe summer, which is the first two months when the upperclassmen do everything they can to sort of try to make you miserable and to try to sort of beat out any kind of individualism that you might have sort of in your head, to beat that out of you and then to be sort of remold you as the uh, army officer that they want you to be. But they would do all kinds of things in order to try to rattle you. And I can remember being in an upperclassman's room with up against the wall, holding up a pencil with the back of my neck. You know, so you would have to sort of keep your neck as straight as possible, your chin down to hold up the pencil while repeating some speech that uh, of some general, maybe MacArthur or something like that, that I'd had to memorize the day before. At the same time that the upperclassman has a rifle butt, which he's banging against my the wall next to my ear like this, trying to make <laughs> me either make a mistake in the recitation or drop the pencil from the back of my neck. And some of the experiences like that, as harrowing as they were at the time, I think sort of taught me to be calm. <laughs> <laughs> later on like as I said if I can sort of try to get through that and stay calm through all of that I can probably be calm through just about anything yeah wow <laughs> <laughs> well that leads me to ask you one question on on your wonderful wife you've you've talked about your family and I know your family and mm. and your wife um sounds like you have a very strong relationship yeah. backbone and you are so you know I'm sure she had a big part to play Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Maybe testing your calm, or she you she also provides you the calm. I think we're sort of a good foil for one another because I think that uh, I think she has she has stronger feelings about things, whereas I'm somebody who sort of says, "Well, yes, that's right," but you know, what about the other side? You know, that kind of thing. And so you know, we get into kind of some some sometimes some disagreements about that kind of thing. I think she she has. She has what I probably need to have sometimes, which is sort of stronger, stronger sort of uh, feelings about some things. You know, not not everything. I don't need to be calm about everything. Some things I should probably be a little bit more passionate about. So, I think between us, I think we sort of we kind of uh, fill one another's gaps. I think pretty well. I think you are both of you are just amazing people, amazing people, and I've just been so blessed to know you. Honestly, just... I think we feel the same way about you. Really, we do. Mm -hmm. so, well, so we have one last question for okay. you. All right. um, you know, we we love these conversations because we learn so much, mm. and it's it's an opportunity for us to be able to share. You know, these share you share our learnings with our audience. So we don't take any of these conversations for granted. So considering that in any conversation, there's always some sort of a discovery, you know, in fact, that's what we do um, mm -hmm. as coaches is that we facilitate discoveries, self-discoveries through, you know, conversation. Um, what discoveries might you have had during, during this hour that we just spent together? You know, it's been a long time since I've talked about some of these things, you know, like uh, like the, what happened when my brother passed away and sort of how we all got through that. 
Mm. What happened when uh, you know it, it, it looked as if my career at the State Department at the U.S. Information Agency was the old USIA, which is now part of the State Department. When it looked as if that career was going to end before it really kind of got started, uh, you know some of those kinds of things. Um, and I haven't talked about some of those things in a long time, so I think sort of pulling pulling some of those out of my memory again, I think was kind of interesting as I sort of approach my mid seventies, you know, some of these things I hadn't thought about with a long time, for a long time. Um, I sometimes wonder whether, you know, you can define your life through the failures that you have and then your ability to overcome the failures or should you define your life by the successes that you've had? And, and perhaps it's more useful really to kind of look at the failures that you've had and why you, why you failed at those and why is it that you sort of moved on from the failure into something that was perhaps more successful and maybe more suited for you. And maybe the failure was just kind of a recognition that uh, you were someplace that you shouldn't be, you know, that you were not suited for whatever it is that caused you to fail. And I think that is a, uh, you know, that's something I hadn't thought about in a long time, but I think that's probably something that this conversation with you has helped kind of draw out of me right now. Mm. Well, I think that's just, you, you have no idea you're being vulnerable and you're, you're I mean, you, you've taught me so many things just in this conversation and, and there's always more to uncover about, about ourselves and about, about people. I think so. And it is about the failures that, that if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have the, the next thing or the next thing. Mm. And we, we put, put to, we tend to put things in binary forms, right? Good, bad, and mm. success, failure, but um that's just i think it's a great reminder that we ought to be thankful for our blessings and failures we talk about that all the time we 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 call it divine dissatisfaction divine you know? dissatisfaction. yes mm. moments moments in our lives past or maybe it's currently in the present that you know is presenting uh challenges you know presenting um in a way that is calling for you or for us to have to expand our current understanding of who we're being. And I'm so glad you brought up what you brought up about maybe it's about the failures. Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's in those moments that we find the learnings, right? Mm -hmm. It's in those, it's in, it's when our backs against the wall is when we can learn that new that next level of what we're capable of and um yeah just beautifully beautifully shared thank you yeah failures and challenges and the tragedies we've been through those are the ones that actually bring bring the best out of you and most learnings in your no, life. no life is without challenges and most lives are are not without uh, tragedies as well but one can move on from those yes yeah well Thank you so much, um, you. David. See now, you you know you you say that you had you had not much to say and all this. I can't. We we I like to keep going. Um, <laughs> Maybe you know, another time. Another time. Yeah. It was really it was really interesting and really fun. I'm I'm glad that you uh, convinced me to do this. So thank you very much. Well, it's delightful to have you, and we I think so, we've grown yeah. more. Absolutely, and it really like it it was it was really these conversations I. Every time we get off, I tell Raju, that was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, we really, we really appreciate you um, sharing what you shared and just from the heart, right? Yeah. And 
just that um, even though we're doing this on the screen, I'm always so amazed by the depth of connection that's possible when people show up with just a desire to, to connect. And um, I think that, you know, we're, we've, we've demonstrated that here. So, so grateful. Thank you so much. We really, we've, we feel you and, and, you know, we've grown so much from just this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure has been mine. It's, it's been a, a fascinating hour and I appreciate you actually reaching out to me. Thank you very much. Hey, we don't give up easily. <laughs> okay. Take care. Take care. Good to, good to see you both. Radio, I look forward to seeing you sometime soon in New York or down here. You bet. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if so, make sure to subscribe, download, and share it with your sphere of influence. You know, we bring a variety of topics to you. And it's like a masterclass for those topics. And it's all free. So take a screenshot. Share it on your social media and add the hashtag BoldConsciousConnections so that we can find you, see you, maybe say hello. And if you want to deep dive into some of the topics that we bring to you, uh, find us at www.livemasterminds.com and get to know us. Take care. <laughs>